Well, good morning. Uh, once again, my name is Elliot, and uh, it's a joy to have you with us. We have been in a series this summer on prayer, and we're calling this series, you can throw the, the, the prayer sermon series slide up, Sacred Delight, Conversations with the Almighty. Uh, we're looking at the mystery, the practice, the art, the spiritual discipline of prayer. But calling it Sacred Delight, Conversations with the Almighty, that's, that's the heading. But let me tell you the heart beneath it as we're approaching it is that we're coming to prayer the way that the disciples did with Jesus in the book of Luke. After hearing Jesus pray for years, they came to him and said, Jesus, will, will you teach us how to pray? We, we don't know how to pray. Will you teach us? And that, that's the heartbeat of this sermon series is... Lord, would you teach us how to pray? We need to have the humility to at least admit we don't know how to do that. Uh, and that's kind of always the case for Christians that we're, we've never like arrived on the shore of having mastered prayer. We're always needing Jesus to teach us and reteach us how to pray. So we've done about four or five weeks on prayer, looked at some intro ideas, what makes prayer hard, why should we do it? Uh, what, what's the challenge of it? Uh, and now we've kind of come the last couple of weeks to actually walking through line by line the, the study of the Lord's Prayer. So we looked at the first week of how to address God. We're told in the Lord's Prayer uh, to call God our Father. And then in the next line, Daryl preached to us last week beautifully about the first request of the prayer is then the second line of the prayer, hallowed be your name, holy be your name. Lord, adored be your name. Would you make it so that your name is renowned, not because you're jealous for, for fame, but because it's good for the world to adore you. That's actually what we were made for. That's what we long for uh, in our sorrow and in our weakness is to adore the Father. So looked at this kind of intro and then how to address God. And then we looked at the first request. Now we get to the second request. And as is almost every line of the prayer, but in particular this one, is another massive biblical idea, another massive biblical reality to look at as we walk through the Lord's Prayer. So this, this is the second petition of the Lord's Prayer uh, after hallowed be your name, may your name be hallowed, may your name be glorified, may your name be adored. And then Matthew 6, we're just going to look at verse 9 and 10. I'm not even doing the intro uh, to the prayer. It just says this, second petition, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. And then just these next three words, your kingdom come. Next week, we'll look at thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the rest of that little section. But just these three words, this whole sermon is, is three words. I'm going to say more than three words. We're just looking at three of Jesus' words. Your kingdom come. Or as the old King James says, thy kingdom come. Why would Jesus include this in the prayer? Why is this the request of the Christian? Why are we taught to pray this way, to ask the Lord for his kingdom to come? And what is Jesus talking about when he uses that word kingdom? Well, Jesus' first followers, the disciples listening to him in this section, but also all throughout the gospels, whenever he talked about the kingdom of God, his disciples were not confused. They did not think he was talking about maybe what we think he's talking about, which is maybe Jesus has some new religious advice for me, and that's kind of what it means to be in his kingdom, that he can really help me feel good about myself, and that's what I would like to see happen. I would like to kind of have a better spirituality, or maybe, maybe what Jesus means when he's talking about a kingdom is just a new set of morals, that maybe we'll, you know, 10 steps to a better living, well, maybe that's what Jesus is about, and that's what his kingdom is about. That's not at all what Jesus meant. That's not at all what Jesus' followers thought Jesus meant when he was talking about the kingdom. They knew this was a stronger and certainly a more dangerous reality. What they believed and what they came to believe was that when Jesus was talking about the kingdom, his life, his death, his resurrection, they believed that a kingdom had come to earth. 
And more in particular, they believe that the kingdom of God, long attached to the prophecies of the Messiah, the messianic king that the Jews were waiting on, that Messiah had brought with him a kingdom. And with the coming of the king, Jesus, with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, the kingdom was here. Now, they had definitions of what they thought his kingdom should mean. They had political agendas. They had social agendas. But they did not mistake, like we often do, that his kingdom meant something has radically changed the world. This is not help me in my little journey of my spiritual quest, and maybe your kingdom will help me have a better self-appreciation of my quest on self-discovery. They thought this kingdom is changing everything. Jesus did not teach his disciples to pray, Lord, bless our nation. He did not teach his disciples to pray, Lord, protect my family, although those are fine things to pray. That's just not what Jesus taught them to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches the prayer that in this request, let your kingdom come, Lord, thy kingdom come. He's teaching the prayer that one's priorities have to be reordered. He does not teach the prayer to pray, Lord, help my kingdom to come. Help all the ways that I would love to see my life work out and the relationships I would love to see and the promotions and the money and the way I want to feel about my life and the way I want my kids to turn out, the way I want my marriage to go and all my romantic pursuits. Would you just, can't we get on the same page, Jesus? Like, I kind of want good things. I'm not asking you to like help my illicit drug addiction. I'm asking like just for things that you want, like that I think I want, that aren't they kind of aligned? Won't you help my kingdom come a little bit? No, he teaches your kingdom come. He teaches in this request that the prayer has to first deal with the fact that maybe the Lord's agenda for our life is different than our agenda for our life. And then to get into what the heck did he mean by a kingdom, to try to summarize what Jesus meant when he used the word kingdom is a nearly impossible task. Not because there isn't a lot said about it, but because there is so much said about it. It has been said, and I would agree with this, some scholars would say, Understanding the kingdom of God is the key to understanding the whole Bible. That maybe the whole story from Genesis to Revelation is about a king and a kingdom. If you don't understand a king and a kingdom, you will not understand the Bible. Because that's how God talks about himself and his mission in the world is through the lens of a king and a kingdom. Richard Pratt, one of my favorite seminary professors, said this, the number one way in which the Bible describes God to us is with the imagery of royalty. He is our king. The Lord is my shepherd, yes, but he is your shepherd king. The Lord is my father, yes, but he is your father king. The Lord is my covenant maker, yes, but he is your covenant king. Any title you would assign to God to address him by or to refer to him as like a scriptural title that you would say he says about himself has to be understood through the lens of his kingship. Lord is my shield. He is my warrior. He is my light. He is my rock. He is my hope. He is my life. Why? Because he's your king. All those things have to be filtered through the lens that sees him as a king. The kingdom of God is the most pervasive theme in the entire Bible. Now, if you've been walking with us in this series, we've been taking these lines from the Lord's Prayer and then finding that biblical idea in another passage of Scripture. So like when we looked at, uh, you know, our Father, what's another section of Scripture that would explain to us what it means that we have God as our Father? So we went to Galatians and talked about being adopted into the family of God. Daryl did the same thing last week. We went to a psalm that talks about the holiness of God and what it means for us. We don't have a secondary passage today because it's all of the passages, (laughs) 
Like we couldn't just, there's no place in scripture that just goes, do you want to understand the kingdom of God in a really succinct, really complete, summarized way? Then let's go to page one and read the whole story. Many people would say that the kingdom of God is on every page of the Bible. Something about our understanding of God as king and God in his kingdom and what life is like when God is not reigning as king and what life will be like when God finally and fully reigns as king on earth. Every page is describing to you like 14 books in the Old Testament. Some would say the historical books of the Old Testament. This is Joshua through Esther. Some people would say it's, it's trying to tell you one thing. This is what life is like when people don't live like God is king. It's all of it. Like, that's the point. Now, there's other things going on too, but I'm saying the point of every story, of every page, of every mission, of every prophecy is the kingdom of God. And so God has royal purposes in the world. God has kingdom purposes in the world. God made the earth to become his kingdom. This is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, one place. Heaven and earth were the same place. God's heavenly kingdom and earth were married. And then the fall, Genesis 3, when sin came, it severed those things. And Genesis 3 on is God going on a mission to reunite those places. May heaven and earth be one again. To bring the heavenly kingdom of God to earth is the mission of God in the world. It's why he sent Jesus to establish, to reestablish the kingdom of God on earth. That's why the kingdom of God is Jesus's favorite topic. He talks about it more than he talks about anything, more than he talks about hell, more than he talks about money, more than he talks about sex, more than he talks about anything, more than he talks about ethics, more than he talks about morals, more than he talks about anything. Everything he talks about is in the lens of the kingdom that he has brought and typically, when we talk about a king and a kingdom, when you talk about a kingdom, we're referring to a place, that the kingdom is the land over which a king rules. Now, that is true because God is bringing his kingdom to bear in the world. He seeks to set up his heavenly kingdom in the world. But the Greek word that Jesus uses, the gospel writers use, the New Testament writers use to talk about the kingdom is a Greek word, basileia. In Basileia, we translate it kingdom in the New Testament. It's probably better understood to indicate not so much just a place, like a geographical place with boundaries. Where does the kingdom stretch out to? But Basileia has more to do with an activity, like a rule or a reign or a dominion. Where does this king rule? How far does his rule stretch? And how would you know when you're in the borders of that kingdom or you're outside the borders of that kingdom? When these kinds of things happen, that's how you know you're in the kingdom of God. Stanley Hauerwas, who's a Duke Divinity professor, adjunct now, but some people would say America's greatest theologian, says this, when you see people being delivered from oppression, when you see justice flowing, when you see slaves set free, when you see grace breaking in, when you see blind see and lame walk, when you see joy abounding, when you see God's reign in action, that's how you know God's kingdom has come. The kinds of things that take place when God is king and people submit to that, beauty abounds, shalom abounds, freedom abounds, the joy of the Christian life abounds. When you see the healing and the restoration of what sin and death have disfigured, there you see the kingdom of God on display. And so when Jesus the king shows up and he begins his public ministry, 
He announces the kingdom of God has come. Why? Because the king of that kingdom is here. It's burst into the world and it's here. John the Baptist, who was Jesus' forerunner, who kind of paved the way for the coming of the Messiah, calling people to repent and believe that the kingdom was here. He goes on and he baptizes Jesus and then soon after he gets arrested. He's thrown in jail. He's in jail and he spent his whole life eating locusts and honey and living with camel skins on like he's a total weirdo. And then he, he's hoping, I did all this work to pave the way for the king to come. And now I hear this guy, Jesus is here, but did his kingdom actually come? Was I crazy for preparing the way for this guy? Was he actually the king? So he's in jail and he sends some of his disciples, some of his messengers out to go find Jesus. He can't text him. And he's saying, hey, it's not looking good in here. And I was kind of hoping when the kingdom came, I wouldn't end up in jail. So, hey, Jesus, could you just let me know? Because it's getting kind of worse in here. I might not make it out of here. Could you let me know, Jesus, if the kingdom has come? Are you the Messiah King? Are you the one that we've all been waiting on? Is the kingdom of God here? And the message that Jesus sends back to him is a direct quote from the book of Isaiah. But he basically says, yeah, the kingdom's here. And here's how you know. Because the blind see and the lame walk, and the slaves are set free, and the hungry are fed. And hey, the kingdom is here, and here, it's not just me telling you that. I'm showing you the examples of how you know the kingdom has come, because the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom is here. That's the announcement. Kingdom of God is here. But other times, like John the Baptist being in prison, it doesn't always appear to be here. Other times it doesn't always appear like the kingdom has come. It seems hidden, seems tough to find, seems tough to tell if it's real or not. Some moments it's here and it's vivid and look at all the good and the beauty and the joy and the shalom and the justice. Look at all of it. And then other times it seems to be so vague. And that tension of sometimes I know it's here and other times I can't tell if it's here or not. Jesus knew that. In fact, so many of Jesus' parables about the kingdom tell us that that's what it's going to be like when you're looking for the kingdom. He gives parables and analogies and images, and almost all of them speak to this experience of, yeah, the kingdom seems like it's there, but I, I can't quite tell. So like one of the images that he gives is he gives that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which is like minuscule, not faith the size of a mustard seed. That's a different thing. But he says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. You can't even see it. But when it gets planted and it gets watered and you give it time over generations, it will become a massive tree and give shade and food and delight to all who are underneath it. But you can't always tell. That mustard seed, I could barely even see it. And then it went in the ground and then it was years before anything happened. So is the kingdom here? Yeah, it's in the ground. Can you see it yet? No. And then another time he tells the parable of the sower, which is about the kingdom, where the sower goes out and casts seed around. And do you know in that parable, there's so much wasted seed three out of the four seeds that he gives the analogy for end up not making it. And so you would go, wait, wait, wait. The parable of the sower, the king who's scattering the seed of his kingdom to grow, so much of it doesn't ever look like the king is actually winning. So much of the king scattering seed, he wastes a whole bunch of seed. One of them grows, but then thorns and birds, and it doesn't work. And then another one, he says, the kingdom of God is like leaven in bread, you have to put it in the dough and then knead it in there. But once you mix it in, you can't tell, like, did I put it in or not? Is it there? I don't know. We have to wait till the whole thing bakes, and then we'll see if it rises or not. But in the process of the leaven working out and infecting the whole loaf, you're not sure until the end product if the kingdom was in there or not, if the leaven of the kingdom was there or not. 
So many of Jesus' kingdom analogies appear to the listener and the viewer that the kingdom might be something small and insignificant and sometimes very difficult for us to see. You won't always be sure if the kingdom is working or not. So, when it's hard to detect for us, we ask great, understandable questions like this. Okay, so if the kingdom's here, if the king has come, the blind are seeing and the lame are walking and justice is happening, why is there still injustice? If you came to feed the hungry, how come people are still hungry? How come people still feel guilty? How come there's still evil? How come there's still death? How come there's still abuse? How come there's still shootings? How come there's still divorce? How come there's still addiction? How come there's still abandonment? How come there's still so much reigning non-kingdom things if the kingdom's here? And this is where we get to what is known, has been known for millennia, as the kingdom paradox. Paradox is two true things that are both true but have an apparent contradiction, but neither one of the true things can fully capture the whole truth. Here's what the kingdom paradox is. The kingdom is here, and it's not here yet. The kingdom has come, and it's still way out in the future. The kingdom has burst on. It's, it's, it's about to fully happen, and it's still so far away. And there's going to be signs. If you want to know if the kingdom's here, look for these signs, look for these symbols, look for these experiences. That'll let you know the kingdom is here, and also those signs are going to be really hard to detect sometimes. Do you see the tension like, it feels like the kingdom is here, and then other times it really doesn't. And so has the kingdom come, or has it not yet come? Yes. This is what theologians would call the already but the not yet of the kingdom. It's here, and it's not here yet. It's come, and it hasn't come yet. Which is why, captured in these three little words in the Lord's Prayer, the Christian, the member of God's kingdom, is told to pray, thy kingdom come. Jesus teaches his followers to pray, your kingdom come, because it hasn't fully come yet. We wouldn't have to ask for it to come if it was fully here. We're not taught to celebrate and pray and rejoice and say, thy kingdom here fully. We say, no, thy kingdom, thy kingdom come because I want, I want more of the kingdom to come. Because God's rule is not yet visible in the way that we long for it to be, because God's rule has broken in and his reign has begun on earth as it is in heaven, it is breaking in, but not in such a way that the Christian would say they're fully satisfied with yet. In other words, things are not as they should be or things are not as they will be yet. So we pray, thy kingdom come. We groan for it, we long for it, we pray for it, we labor for it. Lord, may your kingdom come. We want it to come. We want it to be here. We want the last tear to fall. We want the last cancer diagnosis. We want the last broken marriage. We want the last rebellion. We want the last prodigal child. We want the last addiction. We want the last suicide. We want the last prison sentence. We want the last ego. We want the last death. Because when kingdom fully comes, all those things will be gone. And all those things are still here. And so, Lord, may your kingdom come. Because we want what your kingdom's going to bring when it comes in fullness. The Christian faith is not satisfied with things as they are today. And so when the Christian prays the Lord's prayer and says this line, thy kingdom come, we are leaning forward with eager anticipation to say, Lord, when will the day be that all of creation will be fully and finally restored? When will it happen? 
Lord, let your kingdom come, let your kingdom come, let your kingdom come. We can't wait for it to happen. Because the kingdom did come with Jesus, but it will fully come when the world is finally healed, when the king returns, when the whole creation, Romans 8 said, is finally set free from its bondage, from its prison. And we will experience what we have only heard in part. We will see through a glass, not dimly anymore. So, if you're gonna pray this prayer, thy kingdom come, and you're gonna acknowledge the fact that I have to pray this means that the kingdom hasn't fully come yet. Here's what we are signing up for when we pray thy kingdom come. A life of waiting. Waiting's so fun. How many married couples do you know that go, man, the greatest season of my life was engagement season. It's so fun. I loved planning and not arguing ever. Like I, lo- I loved, I couldn't wait to wait 18 months. Wasn't that fun? By the way, if you are engaged, I forbid you to have an engagement longer than a year, okay? I, I, I like, it is, it's almost biblical. I'm, I, I can almost stand on that. Because <laughs> waiting's terrible. Like waiting to go on a vacation, waiting for a job promotion, waiting for things to end, waiting for seasons to be over. And how about when you go another layer down? How about when you're in suffering and you don't know when the suffering is going to end? As many of you know, valleys are excruciating places to wait in. Because we don't know how to wait. And any cultural exegete would say, well, that's because we have an instant gratification problem. And I would say, no. We have an instant gratification issue, but instant gratification is not the root of the issue. Instant gratification is the fruit of the issue. Do you know what the issue is? We don't know how to wait. The root is a refusal to wait. I want relief, and I'm unwilling to wait on what would heal me, not just relieve me. I want a different reality than the one I currently have, and so I'm unwilling to wait in the one that I currently have, which means I'm unwilling to suffer. I'm unwilling to wait. And that commitment, an unwillingness to wait, turns us into instant gratification hogs. Of course I want instant gratification because waiting in the suffering is excruciating. So I need to go get a fix for this or a relief for this to not feel like it feels like in the valley. And so I will go instantly gratify myself with something because I can't stand the waiting and the suffering anymore. Like what do you do with the place where your longings and your desires and your groanings and your grumblings have to live in this terrible place called reality? Like, what do you do when the things that you work for, you labored for, you prayed for, you pined for, you hungered for, and then those places hit the wall of what is? They crash into the immovable object known as reality, and what you long to be true is not true in real life. What do you do when your longings and your reality don't line up? Like, what do you do when the cancer diagnosis is heart wrenching? What do you do when the memories of your trauma still haunt you? What do you do with the sin that you can't kick and it keeps wounding you and keeps wounding others near you? What do you do with the marriage that seems insufferable? What do you do with the relationships that are broken? What do you do when you long for kingdom to come and it hasn't fully come yet? What do you do in that space? 
you've got three options. You can numb it. You can numb the space you're in. You can suffer in it. Or you can die. Glad you came to church this morning. You can numb it, suffer with it, or die. That's it. There, is, there are no other choices. You can numb away the pain of waiting, or you can suffer with the pain of waiting, or you can refuse to, to do either and die. But here's what, if, if, you'll, if you'll muster up the courage to pray this prayer, Here's what praying this prayer will do for you while you suffer and while you wait for kingdom to come. It will make you a person of hope. And if we're gonna be a people of hope, you have to be willing to wait because that's what hope is. People of hope have to be a people that can live in the dissonance of what we long for and the reality of what is and is not true yet. We have to be willing to wait in the valley of the shadow of death, in the sadness, in the sorrow, in the grief, in the woe, while we wait for kingdom to come, if we're willing to wait in the suffering and not numb it, we become a people of hope. Waiting is the place, it's the only place that hope can live. Do you wanna know the power of hope? Do you wanna know the joy of hope? Do you wanna know what hope does to your anxiety? Do you wanna know what hope does to your depression? Do you wanna know what hope does to your addiction? Hope can only live with you if you're willing to wait. See, because by its very definition, that's that's what hoping is. If you're gonna hope for something, you are going to have to wait for it. That's what hope means. That's what Romans 8 says, hoping is waiting. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, he says, Who hopes for what they already have? You can't hope for something that you already have in your possession. But then he says, but if we hope for it, we wait for it with patience. In fact, if you've been around Troll South for a number of years, I've I've told you this before. Someone told it to me a decade ago and it blew my mind that in the Old Testament language of Hebrew, The Hebrew word for waiting is the same word for hoping. You can't wait and not hope if you're truly waiting, and you can't hope and not wait. It's the same thing. If you're gonna become friends with the suffering and the pain and the woe and the loss and the dark and the grief of the not yetness of the kingdom come, you will then begin to know what hope is. And then, don't like this, but don't kill the messenger, okay? Because continuing to wait, if you're gonna wait and learn what hope is, being willing to wait in the reality of the present and the reality of the pain of the present doesn't make any of the pain go away. I wish that it was like, all right, Lord, I'm willing to wait. Now can I get what I want? (laughs) Like I showed you my willingness to suffer, so won't you take some of the suffering away? Actually, it's the opposite. If you're gonna deal with the present, deal with reality, deal with the pain and become well acquainted with grief, your pain is not gonna get better, it may get worse. The valley may get darker because you're gonna begin to see in your existence in this world of the already but not yet reality that we live in 
that things fall apart and circumstances may not get any better. And just because you ask for something and work for something doesn't mean you have your best life now. And it doesn't always go your way. And it, you don't get all of your wildest dreams fulfilled. And you may not find your forever spouse. And you may have tragedy. And you may lose everything. But if you're willing to wait in the valley, if you're willing to wait in the sadness, and you pray this prayer, you won't end up praying this prayer out of duty. You will scream this prayer. Thy kingdom come. You will hope in it more than ever before for the kingdom to come. The shortest, most dense way to become a prayer of hope is to pray these three words, thy kingdom come. And I'm gonna dare to believe every time I pray it that even though I don't see the kingdom yet, there is more to see than just this reality that I'm living in and there is a kingdom that's coming and I'm daring to hope in it and I'm begging, I'm groaning, I'm crying, I'm screaming for the kingdom to come now. And then we watch and we wait. We wait for the kingdom to fully come one day. That's what this prayer will do to you. It'll make you a waiter on the kingdom come. But also, in the waiting, we don't just wait for the kingdom to come fully one day. We also watch for the inbreaking of the kingdom in our day to day. We're watching and waiting. I know I'm waiting for the kingdom to fully come. I know it's excruciating when my longings don't meet my reality and I hope one day the kingdom comes fully. But until that day, I'm gonna watch for the places that the kingdom is breaking in. See, when we pray your kingdom come, we're saying a version of this. Father, I really need to see in the present tense more and more signs that the war that your life, death, resurrection, and ascension won for us, I need to see that that war is coming to a close sooner than later, please. I need to see more tangible previews of the great day when death will be swallowed up in victory and all of his friends will be dispersed. Can I see some little places where the kingdom is breaking in, where resurrection power is real and there are things that are getting better and righteousness and justice are flowing down? Can there be places where I get glimpses of that movie preview? I know the movie hasn't played yet, but I need little previews to know that it's still coming. Give us some small wins so we don't just end up in despair, please, Father. See, the world needs to know and we need to know that hope is not only possible, but what Romans says, hope won't put us to shame. Because that's what we're actually afraid of. Paul says that in Romans 5, hope won't put you to shame. It's like, who's, who gets ashamed of hoping? People have had their hopes dashed before. I don't want to hope in anything anymore. I don't want to let my heart go there anymore because I can't take it. And so if, I, if I'm afraid to hope, it's I'm afraid that this hope is going to be futile. I'm afraid this hope is going to leave me disappointed. I'm afraid of this heart sickness. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. I don't want a sick heart anymore. But hope in the resurrection, hope in the kingdom to come, Paul says, won't put us to shame because it's real. And so the world needs to know and we need to know that it's okay to hope. And it's possible in this world we live in to believe Everything I see is not all there is to see. There is a world that's coming. There is a new kingdom that's coming. And the way that we will believe it's possible and the way that the world will believe it's possible is when we begin to see when the kingdom breaks in in little ways. When addicts are set free. When good triumphs over evil. When mercy triumphs over judgment. When hospitality wins over tribalism, when unity wins over discord, you will start to go, oh, 
this is what the kingdom smells like. It's here. It's coming. It's like leaven and bread, and the bread's not baked yet. It's like a mustard seed in the ground, but the tree hasn't grown yet. But I see, I see it. I see little bits of it. See, the way the world is going to know that the kingdom is coming is when we join the king and his mission now and begin laboring for and working for little inbreaks of the kingdom everywhere. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 is all about. Go read it. The king who's won the war has now enlisted you as his ambassador and you have been sent from the heavenly country to this world to be the ambassador for that kingdom to say, no, no, there's a new world. There's a different world. There's a redeemed world and it's coming. Let me tell you about it. He actually says in 2 Corinthians 5, the Lord is making his appeal to the world through us. He's appealing to the world to hope in a kingdom come and why in the world would would the world ever want to hope in a kingdom to come because of you? Because you are the ambassador of reconciliation that has labored to help people believe hope will not put you to shame. N.T. Wright says it like this. He's a historian and leading New Testament scholar. He says this, Jesus is the medical genius who discovered penicillin. We are the doctors, ourselves being cured by the same medicine. Now we go and apply it to those who need it. Or, Jesus is the musical genius who wrote the greatest oratorio of all time. And we are the musicians captivated by his beautiful composition ourselves who then go and perform that music to a world full of out of tune instruments. See, when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, here's what we're actually asking. We're not just saying, we'll wait till your kingdom comes. We're also saying, send us into the world to bring the medicine that we've taken. Send us into the world with the music that has given us hope. Make us a community of healed healers. Make us a fully tuned orchestra to play the kingdom music until the world wakes up to the song. So yes, we're waiting for the kingdom to come. But we're also those who know that the king has come. And there is inbreaking of the kingdom. There has been victories of the kingdom. And so we, we have courage to hope that one day it will come because we know it has come. So we don't numb ourselves to the pain. We actually are willing to wait in the pain while we sing the song because we know the kingdom is coming. In the words of late Princeton professor, Princeton theologian professor, Robert Jensen, he said this, the gospel does not say to you, if you do your best to live a good life, God will fulfill that life. Or if you fight on the right side of the issues of your time, everything will be good. No, the gospel says, because the crucified king lives, your destiny is good. It's all gonna be okay. Because the crucified king lives. And because the crucified king lives, his kingdom is coming. And so we pray that it would come more and more fully until the day when it comes in full. And you may be wondering or thinking, I've never heard that music before. I don't even know what, what you're talking about, about a new world and a fully restored creation and a resurrection for all that has been lost. I've never heard that music. I've never taken that medicine. I don't know what you're talking about. Or you may be thinking that you've heard the song before, but maybe the song's grown dull for you. Seems kind of boring for you because the song that you were force-fed to love actually was just hollow, nominal Christianity and it never actually had any meat to it. And so you go, well, I think I'm supposed to be excited about something, but I don't really know what it is. And no one's ever told me about how I could actually be a part of bringing the kingdom to the world. No one's ever given me something to sing in the valley while I'm hoping. 
So let me tell you one more thing about this kingdom. Again, like I said, we could have gone to so many places in scripture to talk about the kingdom. But in Matthew chapter 13, it's known as the kingdom chapter of Matthew. Every sentence of Matthew 13 is about the kingdom. In Matthew 13, he tells two back-to-back, two-sentence parables. Jesus does. He's Jesus. That's what I'm talking about, in case you haven't been listening. But he tells two back-to-back, two-sentence parables. Here's the first one. The first kingdom parable, he says, that the kingdom of heaven is like a field where there's a treasure hidden, And someone finds out that there's a treasure hidden in that field and that man sells everything he has to buy the field so he can get the treasure. And then in the next parable, the kingdom of God is compared to a man who's looking for pearls and he finds a pearl of great price, a pearl of great value. And so he sells everything he has to buy the pearl of great price for himself. So one kingdom parable is about a man who sells everything to buy a field with a treasure so he can have the treasure. And the other kingdom parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sells everything to buy a pearl for himself. And if you've heard those parables preached, you've probably heard it like this. Don't you see how valuable the kingdom is? Why haven't you sold everything to go buy that pearl for yourself? Why haven't you sold everything and moved to Zimbabwe? Why haven't you, why do you still have food in your pantry when there's hungry people down the street? What are you doing? Why haven't you sold everything? And first, I'm sorry, because those parables are not about you. They are, you're just not the primary object. See, in this kingdom, the only one who's actually ever sold everything is the king himself. The king is the one who had a treasure and he bought the field so he could have for himself the treasure and you were the treasure. The king is the one who sold everything he had so he could buy you back for himself. That's what this king and this kingdom are like. That's the medicine we have to take. That's the music we have to sing. That for outcasts like us, rebels like us, prodigals like us, liars and lusters like us, deceivers and cheaters like us, we were of infinite value to the king of this kingdom. And here's how that helps you while you wait. Because while you wait in the valley, when your longing and your reality don't line up, the valley is going to tell you all kinds of things about the king and about how the king feels about you. And these two kingdom parables would say to you, this is how the king feels about you. I know what narrative your suffering has written about you and about the king. I know what narrative your suffering is trying to tell you is most true. But let me tell you how this king feels about you. The king sold all he had. He sold himself to buy you back. And so we long for the day when that king and that kingdom come in fullness where the glory and the knowledge of that kingdom fill the earth. And so, Father, let your kingdom come. And until it does, we will wait, we will hope, and we will sing. Let's pray. Jesus, we are bad waiters because suffering is hard and pain is real. And we don't want to be numb and we don't want to die. We want to learn how to suffer well. So would you make us well acquainted with grief like you are? Would you make us actually steer towards the pain of life and not away from it? To embrace the sadness because that's where hope lives. To embrace the loneliness because that's where hope lives. And with these three words, your kingdom come. Would you make us hopers? Would you make us waiters? 
Would you make us ambassadors of the hope that doesn't put us to shame? We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.